0: Alright, amen and amen. Thank you very much. Good to see all of you today. If you would turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans is my favorite book in the Bible. That's why we spent about 12 years in it at one time, I think. It's a long, long time. I can't even remember how long it was, but it's a great, great book. And there are uh, just wonderful truths in this book. And we have a chapter in this book that is um, devoted to baptism in a sense which is what we will be celebrating uh, very, very soon. And so we're looking forward to it. Um, As most of us know, as Baptists, we practice uh, immersion. And so that means someone will stand in the waters of baptism. Someone else will baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lower them under the water completely, and then bring them back up. And so the question is, Why do we do that? Is it significant uh, that we do that? On the front of our bulletin, we talk about making disciples who rest in Jesus, hope in God, and pursue love. And the reality is baptism is a very important picture for us in understanding what that means, to rest in Jesus, to hope in God, and to pursue love. And I hope as we go through this and remind ourselves of what the picture is, Uh, The gospel is in baptism, that we will be encouraged. Uh, For those of us who have already been baptized, hopefully it will remind us of the significance of that for us, and obviously for Jonathan and Ethan as they look forward to their baptism, it will uh, help them to even understand even more about the significance of what will happen in just a little while. Uh, Baptism is meant to be a reminder of both our past, our present, and our future, And um, unfortunately, uh, baptism for many of us um, doesn't carry the weight that Paul gives it in Romans chapter 6. Many times we miss the picture that's being portrayed there. Many times we um, undervalue the significance of what it represents. Uh, There's a story about four churches that were having trouble with uh, squirrels getting into their sanctuaries. And so one church was more um, on the reform side, and they decided that it was God's will for the ch- squirrels to be there, so they didn't do anything. And then there was another church that uh, used a bowl to baptize in. The squirrels were in the bowl, and so they decided to put a cover on the bowl and drown the squirrels. Then there's another church that decided that, you know what, uh, we don't want to do anything inhumane, and so we'll just trap them and put them in the woods, and yet the squirrels just kept coming back. Well, the most effective church in this story was a Baptist church that decided the best way to keep the church out of the uh, keep the squirrels out of the church was to baptize them and make them members of the church, and then they would only see them on Christmas and Easter. <laughs> so the interesting thing about that story to me is I grew up in a Baptist church, and there was talk all the time about how so many people were baptized but never showed back up at church afterwards. And that was just a common theme among Baptist churches when I was growing up. And Paul would look at that and say, wow, there's something terribly wrong. Because somebody has not understood what baptism was all about. If they could be baptized and then just go their own way and never uh, come back. And so that's what we want to do is think about what Paul has to say about the realities of uh, the gospel and how they're pictured in baptism. Uh, John Calvin said about the book of Romans is that if we have gained an understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scripture. What he means is, if we understand what what the book of Romans is all about, we'll understand what the Bible is all about. And at the heart of the book of Romans is salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Well, I want to argue that Paul uses the picture of baptism, a very a physical thing, to picture for us and to open the door for us to see some of the most profound truths in scripture over all. So let me read for us um, this chapter and then we'll uh, touch on various aspects of it this morning as we prepare to celebrate baptism in a little while. In verse 1 it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin, As instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And have, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. So um, we often think of baptism as a function or a practice, right? So when we talk about having a baptismal service, we immediately understand that we're going to find some body of water, whether it's inside a building or outside a building, And we're going to put people in that water and we're going to baptize them. And so we think oftentimes simply about the function of it. But Paul is talking about physical baptism, but he's talking about what it represents and what it pictures for us and the significance of it that we want to remember not only on that day when we're baptized, but for the rest of our lives. We don't want to miss the importance of the picture the realities that are pictured in baptism. I've mentioned to you before, uh, and this, again, is something that I can relate to as a child growing up. Uh, I would have uh, pastors uh, often that would preach, and my pastor that I grew up with would do this every Sunday. He'd take off his watch, and he'd put it on the, the um, podium. And there was a little boy one time who saw a pastor do that and asked his father, what does that mean when the pastor takes off his watch and puts it on the podium? And the preacher, or excuse me, the father said, absolutely nothing, son, absolutely nothing. What we thought it meant was he's going to watch the time and he's going to make sure he ends on time. But the man was saying, you know what? It doesn't mean anything because he's not going to pay attention to that watch. He's just going to preach on until he's done. Well, unfortunately, you can apply that to baptism we can watch a baptism and totally miss the, the significance of it. We can walk away and not really see the meaning of it. We know someone's been baptized. We know it's supposed to be really important and significant, especially for them, but what does it really mean? And so we understand that the, that baptism is an ordinance. It's something that's been ordered that the church does, that Christ, the head of the church, has ordered that we baptize those who believe in him at the beginning of their walk with Christ. And there's a reference in the Old Testament to an ordinance, a different ordinance, but it's closely related. In Exodus 12, it's talking about the Passover where God told the children of Israel to kill a lamb and put blood over their doorposts and lentils. And it was going to... Uh, protect them from the death angel that would come to kill the firstborn and they were to celebrate that ordinance for the rest of their lives and God says it's going to be a rite that you observe and you will do this so that when your children ask you what does this rite mean you will tell them that this represents what God did for us when he brought us out of the land of Egypt And the same thing is being represented in the ordinance of baptism. God is saying that you teach your children and you teach others what I've done for you uh, through this ordinance. One of the things that's really interesting, I mentioned in the original story about the squirrels, that one church decided to actually drown the squirrels, which sounds very, very harsh and mean and, and violent. Uh, There was one theologian I was reading who was talking about how people looked at baptism in the first century. We think about baptism as being a very uh, clean um, ceremony, a very moving ceremony, a, a beautiful ceremony, and it is. And it's supposed to be. And yet for people in the first century, they pictured it as something very different. They pictured it as a violent act. Now, why would they do that? Well, the word for baptism was also often associated with things like being drowned, like those squirrels were, or ships sinking. And we can see that even the Lord Jesus said in Luke 12:50 50, that uh, he had a baptism to undergo, and he was distressed until it was fulfilled. So why would he be distressed about a, a ceremony that's so nice and clean? It's because the baptism he was talking about was his death, a very violent thing. And interestingly enough, as well in 1 Peter 3, Peter links baptism uh, to the flood. He says baptism corresponds to the flood waters of Noah's day. Be- why? Because Jesus entered those flood waters of divine judgment to rescue us from the floodwaters of divine judgment. Therefore, from the perspective of the biblical writers, uh, baptism represented violence. It represented judgment. It represented drowning, which means it represented death, but not death alone, death and then resurrection. And that's what we have pictured in baptism is life, Death and then being buried and then raised to walk in newness of life. And so what I want to do is I want to just touch on four aspects of this that we can see in this chapter. When we think about the picture of baptism, we want to think about the fact that baptism um, pictures for us what Christ did for us, what Christ did in us, what Christ does in us, and what Christ will do for us. And we just want to briefly touch on those things uh, as a reminder of things that we already know, but it's good to be reminded that this is a wonderful picture for us every time we see it, and every time we think of our own baptism, we want to think of it in these terms. And so, the first thing is that baptism is a picture of what Christ did for us, it's about Him being a substitute. Instead of us going through the, the waters of divine judgment, He goes through the floodwaters of divine judgment. He is our substitute. He lives the life that we could never live. He dies the death that we deserve to die. And then he is raised from the dead, right? So he lives, he dies, he's buried, and he rises again. We see that in verses 3 and 4 where it says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So there it refers to his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him, so his death and then his burial, with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul is highlighting the fact that baptism first and foremost signifies the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's something that he did for us. It's something that's outside of us. It's it's why... Martin Luther would talk about an alien righteousness. When we think of aliens, we think of beings outside of our earth, outside of our realm. And Martin Luther would talk about an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of us, that we don't have. And John Bunyan really uh, struggled with his own assurance of salvation because he knew what a sinner he was. And he kept feeling like that he probably had committed the unpardonable sin. And he really, really wrestled until one day he God opened his eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And the way it came across was he said, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And he said, I thought that the eyes of my soul saw Jesus at God's right hand. And God communicated to him the truth that no matter what he did, no matter how he failed, no matter how he sinned, he was righteous in the eyes of God. Why? Because his righteousness wasn't inside of him. It wasn't a part of his life at least the righteousness that justified him before God. The righteousness that justified him before God and gave him a right relationship to God was totally outside of him. It was something that Jesus did for him. He lived the life that John Bunyan could never live. He lived the life that you and I could never live. Perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect love. Then he died for our unrighteousness, our unholiness and our failure to love. And so... At that point, John Bunyan said, that's when I really went home praising God for his love. He could rest in the love of God for him when he knew that his righteousness was outside of him and it was Jesus. That Jesus was his righteousness. And so the first thing that Paul is highlighting for us is what he's already talked about in chapters 3, 4, and 5 which is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it's not anything in us, it's not anything we do, it's what Christ has done for us that is so important. One way to think of it is in terms of a purchase that's been made. In order for us to be saved from our sin and to be rescued from the floodwaters of divine judgment, a purchase had to be made. And the only person who could do that was Jesus. He had to pay a price, a price that we could pay ourselves. We could not d- die for our own sins. We could not die for anyone else's sins. Only he could do that. And Martin Luther could say grace was purchased with an infinite treasure, the Son of God himself. And so that was something that was done for us. Jesus came to make a purchase, a purchase on our behalf And he purchased for us the righteousness and the forgiveness that we desperately need. Now, that's pretty familiar to most of us, that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. But that is the very foundation of everything else. And obviously, one of the things that's pictured in baptism that we need to always remember is that it pictures a cleansing, right? Water cleanses us and we're cleansed. cleansed of our sin and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ because of what he did for us. And so we never want to forget that. Paul, excuse me, Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that we are to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and that we might enjoy eternal life. And so that is the foundation of it. But sometimes we don't go beyond that and really think about what Paul says is Other things that are also represented by baptism, which brings us to what Christ actually did in us. He did wonderful and amazing and tremendous things for us, but he also did amazing and wonderful things in us that are represented and pictured by baptism. Baptism is that picture of what God has done to change us. What he's done um, to deliver us from our deadness to him, and to raise us to spiritual life. What he's done to unite us to Christ, and it is basically uh, about our regeneration, the new life that God has given us. What Christ did for us is all about our justification, how we're made right with God or declared right with God. This aspect of it is about our regeneration, the new life that God has given us because of what Christ did for us the changed person that we are. And so um, there's another story about a man who was walking along and he saw this briar in a ditch. And he got out a little shovel that he had with him and he, he got the briar out of the ditch and he brought it back home and he put it in his rose garden. And in the story... Uh, The briar is talking to himself and saying, why in the world did that guy get me out of the ditch and bring me and stick me in the middle of these roses? Doesn't he know that I'm a briar and uh, this isn't going to be good for his garden? Well, the gardener comes along and he cuts a slit in the briar and he engrafts that briar into a rose. And the gardener says, after roses begin to bloom on that briar, He says, your beauty is not due to what came out, but to what I put in. And that's important because what we find in verses 5 through 7, when it talks about being united with Christ, that means engrafted to Christ. Just like that briar was engrafted to a rose. It says in verses 5 through 7, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death... Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So baptism represents not only what Christ did for us, but what Christ has already done in us. He has united us to him in his Death, in his burial, in his resurrection. We've been united to Christ spiritually. That happened when he regenerated us, when he raised us from spiritual deadness, when we did not want to have anything to do with God. We were running away from God, but God got a hold of us and he raised us from the spiritually dead. And when he did that, he united us to Christ. He united us to Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul says the result of that is we have died to sin. He doesn't say that sin has died. He doesn't say we're not going to be tempted. He doesn't say we're never going to sin again. If you read on in Romans chapter 7, you realize that no, there's still a real fight against sin. And that we often fail. We often still sin. But he's saying that there's been a, a a break with sin. There, there's a difference now. Our relationship to sin is not the same as it was before we became a Christian. What he argues is that sin is no longer our master. And there's a very real um, truth that we don't have to sin anymore. When I, before I became a Christian, before you became a Christian, we were ruled by sin. And that was what we did. We were in rebellion against God. We didn't want God to rule and reign over us. We weren't going to submit to God. And so we lived our lives doing what we wanted to do. And sin was our master. But now that we've been born again, sin is no longer our master because of what Christ did to break that rule over our lives. So we have died to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. But actually, verse 22 says... Now, having been freed from sin, in terms of sin's reign over our lives, dominion over our lives, we've been enslaved to God. God is now ruling and reigning in our lives in that sense. R.C. could talk, spoke about the fact that um, Lazarus did not cooperate in his resurrection, right? So uh, when the Bible talks about how we become Christians, God raises us from the dead, just like Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet, we need to understand that the life that we've been given, having been raised from the dead, is very different than what we were before we were raised from the dead and had died with Christ. We are now free from the rule and reign of sin. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So Christ died for me, just like Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, that he lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's an important part, but it's also important to realize that Christ did things in you and me when we were raised from the spiritually dead. We're not the same people we were before. Old things passed away new things have come. Which brings us uh, to the third thing that we see pictured in baptism. So I just want to make sure I'm being clear here. Baptism pictures the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it also pictures our death, burial, and resurrection spiritually. When we come to Christ, when we're regenerated, there is a real spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. We're new people. But That also applies to how we're to live our lives. There's a death, burial, and resurrection that is a dynamic in the Christian life, which is the aspect of baptism that's pictured in what Christ does in us. And that's what Paul is really arguing for here is that in light of what Christ has done for you and in light of what Christ has done in you, therefore, this is how you're to live your life. Because when we talk about what Christ does in us, we're talking about sanctification, We're talking about the the new life that we are to live. As it says in verse 4, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been united to Christ. Christ did what he did. He's done what he's done in us as we came to Christ, that we might live a new life. Um, There's a guy who talked about this whole dynamic, and he said, you know what? Let's say my car uh, was having engine trouble, and it just... Died. The engine just wouldn't do anything. And so I took the car to the mechanic, and they put a a new engine in it. And then I got the car back, and the car didn't run any better then than it did before. He says, what I would think is, there's something wrong here. Um, Was the old engine really replaced or just cleaned up? And so what he's highlighting is sometimes we fail to recognize that our lives are meant to look a lot different as Christians because of what Christ did for us and what Christ has done in us. We're not the same people. And yet I think a lot of times because we're not doing what Paul called us to do here, in looking at what, at what Christ did for us and at looking at what Christ did in us, we still act like we're slaves of sin. We still act like we don't have a choice to walk in righteousness. Because you see what he says in verse 11. He says, in light of all I just said, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So in verse 11, he basically says, Cons- consider these things to be true. Now, he's not saying, uh, just imagine that these are true, even though they're not. What he's saying is, believe what you can't see. You can't see that you've been crucified with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, and you've been raised with Christ to live a new kind of life. You can't see that with your spirit, your physical eyes, but you need to believe it. By faith, You are to receive it. You are to count it as true. You are to embrace what the word of God says about you, not what you feel or what other people say about you. You want to believe what the Bible says, what God says is true of you, that no matter how enslaved you feel to something, God says, I've set you free from that. You're not a slave to that. I've transferred you into my kingdom and now you're my slave. And so he, he encourages us to believe it and then act on it, to present our lives to God, to present our bodies to God, to do what pleases God, because we're called to live consistent with what is true of us. And I think many times, I know in my own Christian life, I think in terms of what I'm supposed to do. But I don't think much about what has already been done in me and for me. And therefore, I'm trying to make something happen, not out of faith in Christ, but out of my own willpower or out of my own sense of guilt or obligation. And Paul is saying, in fact, uh, verse 11 is the first exhortation in the book of Romans. He lays all of this truth down about what Christ has done for us and what he's done in us. And then he says, now on the basis of this truth, begin to act on it, begin to live consistently with what is true of you, who you are in Christ, what is true of you in Christ, which means, like it says later on in Romans 12, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, which means so we can live it out. I have to have my mind renewed so I don't think of myself as a slave to sin or a slave to the world and people around me, but I've been set free And I can walk more and more in a manner pleasing to God, not perfectly, will never be perfect. But we can walk in a manner pleasing to God more and more. At verse 21 through 23, um, he highlights the fact that um, if we want to um, pursue what really is going to make us happy, then we will do that. We will consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and give ourselves to please God. In verse 21, it says, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. So he's talking about benefits and outcome. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So on the one hand, Paul is using the picture of um, sin being our slave master. But he says, you've been set free from that master, and now God is your master. And God is a much better master than sin and Satan. But he also uses the picture here of um, a general general paying his soldiers. When he says in 23, for the wages of sin is death, the word wage there means uh, is the idea of a general paying his soldiers for what they've done. Which means sin pays. But it doesn't pay what we think it will pay. Sin promises life, sin promises freedom, sin promises happiness, but sin pays. Death, destruction of relationships, misery, and ultimately hell. That's what it pays. That's like a general paying his soldiers, those who are following his bidding, he brings death. But God gives life. And so, basically, Paul is arguing, uh, he's asked two questions in this chapter. In verse 1 he says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Which means, you know, if God's grace abounds, when sin abounds, shouldn't we just keep on sinning? And he says, no way. Then in verse um, 15 he asks, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he says, no way. And he's arguing that on the one hand we shouldn't live in sin and we shouldn't even think one sin is okay because we've been set free from sin, number one. And number two, we're all wired to pursue our happiness, and sin does not bring happiness. The benefit is not life and joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and all that our hearts long for. It's death. So he says, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're killing yourself by giving yourself over to what God says is disobedience and sin. And so he says, It's to your own personal interest, benefit, outcome. That's what eternal life is. It's happiness in God, in the presence of God forever. It's to our own benefit to pursue a life that pleases God. And so what's pictured in baptism is that I am not the person I used to be, that I am going to live my life by dying. Dying to what? Dying to my own will and my own pursuit of pleasure in whatever way I want to pursue it. I'm going to die to that and I'm going to live. I'm going to to be resurrected to a life of living to please God because he set me free to live to please him and I will truly be satisfied in him as I live to please him. Well, that brings us to the last thing that, picture, that is pictured in baptism, which is what Christ will do for us. Because the reality is, even the best of Christians will say that life in this world isn't everything I want it to be. And sometimes we can portray the Christian life as if it were, you know, if you just come to Christ, if you just trust in Christ, everything will be wonderful. Well, no, everything isn't wonderful. We still live in a fallen world. We still sin. Other people still sin. Uh, Paul could talk about even the Christian life is sorrowful, yet rejoicing. It's a mixture of the two. It's not everything that we want it to be. And yet baptism pictures the fact that one day it will be everything we want it to be. Um, so baptism is a picture of what Christ one day will do for us because At the end of time, Christ has promised to raise our bodies from the dead and to glorify us, to give us a glorified body just like his glorified body and to usher us into the kingdom of heaven on earth in which there will be no sin, no suffering, no evil, no pain, no misery, just perfect joy and love Forever, indeed, Jonathan Edwards would argue, ever-increasing joy, forever and ever. And So baptism is a reminder that, yes, I will one day die unless the Lord comes back first. And my body would be put in the ground, but it will not stay there. It will be raised in glory to enjoy the presence of God forever and ever. And that's the promise that's pictured in... Baptism. Um, it's kind of like, um, let's see, this is J.I. J. Packer says. He talks about the fact that the best is always yet to be for Christians. It's not now. There, there was a book written by a preacher that many of you are familiar with called Your Best Life Now. If If my best life is now, then I would say Probably what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul wouldn't say our best life is now. He would say our best life is yet to come. It's through the resurrection of the body from the dead. Uh, J.I. Packer has said, Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life um, and in every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. In this life, God never promised us a rose garden. He never promised us that things would would be easy. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome this world. Take heart, one day you will have everything that your heart longs for. In Jude 1, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And so there's some really, really important things that are pictured by baptism. It pictures our justification. It pictures our regeneration. It pictures our sanctification. It pictures our glorification. All of those are pictured through what we see in baptism. Let me just wrap up by just highlighting for us, um, again, what is Paul really dealing with here in Romans chapter 6? He's answering the question, should we continue fighting sin? Or should we just say, you know what? There's no reason to fight sin anymore because we're saved by grace, uh, because God's grace is magnified when we sin, and he still accepts us. And Paul says, that's unreasonable, And that's undesirable to embrace that because we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to God. We've died to our old master who was sin, and we're alive to our new master who is God. We're no longer under the law, which says you get what you deserve, but we're under grace that says you get what you don't deserve. And we're in union with the resurrected Christ, and we're in union with the satisfying Christ. And so the resurrected Christ will help us to fight sin as we need to, and the satisfying Christ promises to meet the deepest needs of our heart and to fulfill all our longings in the kingdom to come. He argues, Paul does, that the outcome of sin is death, but the outcome of righteousness is life. As we live to please God, we experience joy and peace in Christ. He says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And so it's unthinkable to continue living in sin. It's unthinkable to be baptized and never come back to church. It's unthinkable to be baptized and not live a new life in light of all that Paul is talking about here. But I just want to close with uh, just a reminder that ultimately, baptism is a testimony of our faith in God's love for us, and a testimony to our love for God. Um, As I've mentioned, the, the waters of baptism picture a lot of different things for us. And one of the things it pictures for us is the love of God. And Jonathan Edwards could talk about the fact that one day we will be submerged in the ocean of God's love. We will experience it fully and forever. We just kind of uh, dip our toes in the ocean of God's love in this life. But in the life to come, we will be immersed in the ocean of God's love, and we will be overwhelmed. We will be loved um, violently, so to speak, in the ocean of God's love. And until that time, uh, the Bible tells us many waters cannot quench love. So the waters of baptism also remind us that there's nothing that's going to keep God from immersing us completely in his love and the experience of his love in the world to come. Nothing can stand in the way. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's what we see at the end of Romans 8. In light of that, we are called to love. We love because he first loved us. We love because he is loving us. We love because he's promised to always and forever Love us. We give our lives to love. And so baptism is an expression of faith in the love of God for us in Christ and an expression of our love to Christ, that we seek to live to love Christ. Um, there's a story of a, a woman who was married to a husband who was very demanding. He came up with a list of do's and don'ts that she was to do every day or incur his wrath. He ended up dying, and she married another husband. This husband loved her and sought to do everything he could to communicate that love to her. And what the experience was of that wife was, under her first husband, she felt obligated to do certain things, get up at a certain time, fix the breakfast, do certain things for her husband. But it was just an obligation. There was no joy in it. The second husband, who loved her... She realized one day, she came across that list that her first husband had made, and she began to think about that list and realized she was already doing those things. She wasn't following a list, she was following her love. She had a love for that new husband, and it was out of love for that husband that she was doing all the things that she should have been doing. That's the picture that Paul paints for us in in the book of Romans, is that, yes, there are things we ought to be doing, but it's not the idea of being under law, where we have to do it as the law demands. It comes down to, I've been loved. I am being loved. And it's to my own benefit to love in return this one who has loved me. And that's what we see pictured in baptism is actually a picture of a love relationship. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would just... um, remind all of us father who have gone through the waters of baptism of what a wonderful thing that is pictured in baptism i pray father that we would be encouraged as we are reminded of what you've done for us what you've done in us what you're what you do in us and what you will do for us father we pray that as we watch uh, the baptisms this afternoon that you would grant, uh, especially to the two young men who are going to be baptized, uh, much grace in believing these things and living in light of these things as they grow up and as they mature. Help all of us, Father, to be encouraged and to receive fresh grace as well as we seek to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, to realize that we have been loved in great and wonderful ways And we pray that we would grow in our love for you. We just thank you that this is good news, that baptism pictures the most amazing and wonderful news that there could ever be. There's nothing better than being loved by you. Nothing better than being loved by you. And may we live our lives in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.